2009, September 25th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 3, Imagining Other Worlds. And we'll begin. So this is the first week of class. I always feel like the first week of class is just complete and utter chaos for everybody involved. And so I don't really want to dive completely into the subject on the first day. So the second, by the second or third day, we're starting to pick up, like yesterday, on sort of the general units, the common language we're going to use. Today I wanted to bring up a topic which begins to set the stage for our discussion of life on other worlds. And I want to bring up, essentially, the cultural history of the question of life on other worlds, because this really sets the context. One of the first and foremost lessons that we're going to see today is that our imaginings of other worlds and the peopling of other worlds is almost as old as human history, and certainly as old as our, as our intellectual study of the heavens. It goes back many thousands of years. We begin to see, even then, speculations on whether there were other worlds like the Earth, and try to put the context of when you can ask the question. Often it's as important to know where our ideas come from as to know what those ideas are. And so that's one of the central themes of this class, is not just the facts, but how have we come to know those facts. And in this particular question, because it's such a big question, it has so many different re, um, implications for our culture, it's good to understand where we're starting from before we dive into the technical parts of addressing this question scientifically. So we're really going to be looking at our imaginings of other worlds, but there's almost no science in this particular imagining, as we'll see today. The Copernican Revolution of the Middle Ages actually rekindled an interest in other worlds in the West. And in fact, this was an ideal which was excluded by the prevailing Aristotelian and, and uh, Platonic ideals of the world. For 1,500 years, people didn't actually think it made philosophical sense to discuss other worlds, except occasional people kind of working at the fringes. You'd think nowadays everyone thinks it, but at a time, people thought it wasn't even a sensible question to ask. Finally, I want to bring up the idea of one of the motivations, in fact, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a motivation for a lot of you for interest in taking this class, is certainly in, in Western culture in the United States, we've thought a lot about the question of extraterrestrial life. These ideas are actually deeply embedded within sort of the cultural iconography today. And the question is, where do these origins, what are some of these ideas we've come up with, do they inform the inquiry we're about to begin, or are we going to find that none of these ideas is very scientific? So today's lecture is really looking at the cultural underpinnings of the scientific question we're about to embark upon. Now, if you really want to get down at the, the, the heart of this question, it goes back even older than human history. Probably as long as human beings have been able to look up at the sky, they've seen the stars at night. It's actually one of the, the sad ironies of the modern world that our, our cities and our homes are so brightly lit and we're sort of inside with our faces bent down on two TVs or computers that we rarely, if ever, get out into the night sky and see the night sky. But to our distant ancestors who had no lights, who basically lived in a world lit only by fire, to use William Manchester's memorable words, the night sky was a source of tremendous wonder, as it still is today to those of us who are at least fortunate enough to get out there. And I really urge all of you, when the skies are clear in the summertime, when you're off on vacation, if you're in some remote place, go outside at night on a clear night, especially in the summer sky. And if you're lucky in the Southern Hemisphere, the sky is, is marvelously beautiful. It's one of the reasons I'm an astronomer is because the heavens are just so beautiful to study. If you look up at the sky, even without instruments, just with the naked eye and reasonable human vision, you could count up something like 6,000 stars visible to the naked eye from middle latitudes over the entire course of a year. This 6,000 stars seems like an awful lot, but in fact, it's barely scratching the surface. 
Within our own Milky Way, there are more than 200 billion stars by our current accounting for the size of the Milky Way galaxy. The Sun is only one of those 200 billion stars. And so we've wondered for a very long time, what are the stars? What are these lights up in the sky? Are they like our Sun? Are they different? They've been a source of wonder. They've excited the the interests of our poets, they've excited the the work of our artists, and they've excited a number of other artists and and thinkers to saying, what are the stars all about? It is our contemplation of the heavens that was the birth of modern science, in large measure. But we can see depictions of the stars appear in many places. The idea of the stars as eternal and fixed and somehow beyond time was an idea that certainly made their way through the Egyptians. We see temple carvings that have survived and temple paintings that have survived depicting the entire night sky. This shows a set of the constellations to the Egyptians at the time of of Pharaoh Seti I, which is about 1275 BC, or something more than 3,200 years ago. Some of these constellations are actually somewhat recognizable. The constellation of the bull here and a large hunter down here is in fact the constellations of Taurus and Orion that we see in our own uh, fall and winter sky. So the sky is viewed by the ancient Egyptians, by the ancient civilizations that are the first evidence of writing, is substantially the same sky that we see today. Even in cultures that did not come into contact with the West until very late in in, in history, for example, the Aztecs, also populated the sky and contemplated the sky and populated it with figures and constellations. So, for example, the Seven Sisters of the Pleiades, a very prominent small asterism, a a grouping of seven stars in the sky, was called uh, Tianquintzli in the uh, Nahuatl language of the Aztec. It basically means the marketplace, because it was obviously a place where there was a gathering of bright stars. In fact, the word uh, Tianquintzli is, in fact, the generic word in the Aztec language for a marketplace. The Chinese, certainly coming into the, uh, around the 7th century AD, at the time of the height of the Silk Road, just before the rise of, of, of the West in the, in the Middle Ages and, and Renaissance, left behind in a little tiny dusty town called Dunhuang a series of star charts which are probably among the first really accurate depictions of the positions of constellations in the night sky. If you look very carefully here, you can see outlined by my laser pointer the Big Dipper. And, of course, the central polar constellation and the pole star, although not quite, Polaris is a little bit off the pole star at the time of the 7th century. This is one of the oldest existing star charts. So certainly it's excited wonder. They've excited attention. But not just simply the existence of the stars. People started asking, well, what are the stars? Not just simply the recounting of the phenomena in the sky of counting stories or mythologies associated with them. For the first real written records where we have explicit contemplation about the possibility of other worlds really comes into the record about 2,600 years ago in ancient Greece. This is sort of in the pre-Aristotle era. And there are two particular philosophers who come into play who really began this discussion. Thales of Miletus and his student Anaximander. We don't know what Thales looked like, but his student Anaximander, there's one surviving carving, which is at the very least a depiction of him, if not an actual portrait. They didn't actually work in Athens or the centers of Greek society. They were out in Ionia at a place called Miletus. And they came up with the idea that the heavens were actually composed of physical objects. These weren't just simply lights suspended by the gods on sort sort of dome of the sky but that the stars, the moon, the sun, and the planets were actual physical objects, just like physical objects here on the Earth. Now, their ideas were picked up a couple of centuries later by a school of thought that later came to be called the atomists. 
of whom the most prominent of these was the philosopher Democritus, who lived basically between the years 460 and 370 BC. Democritus and others basically conceived of matter, stuff, earth, air, wind, and fire, as composed of tiny microscopic particles they called atoms. The word atom comes from the Greek word atomos, which means uncuttable. So like tomography is cutting something. They notice, for example, if you take a rock, you break a rock down into pieces, and you break a small piece into a smaller piece, and a smaller piece into a smaller piece still, and pretty soon you get down to mineral grains. And if you start breaking down those mineral grains, eventually you grind the rock into fine powder. Well, they followed that philosophical progression along further and said eventually you'll get down to some size where you can no longer cut it into a smaller division. There's no longer anything you could get by whacking away at the final pieces. And they called these uncuttables the atoms. We should not acronist, acronist, we should not, we should not basically try to apply the modern term atom to these anachronistically. We should not anachronistically try to apply the word atoms that we use today to theirs. They did not conceive of matter in the atomic theory the way we do, although we borrowed that word when we did in fact invent atomic theory in the late 19th century. So they not only picked up this idea that the heavens were composed of physical objects, that these physical objects ultimately could be divided down into fundamental constituents which were indivisible and otherwise otherwise, um, fundamental, and that the, the interactions among all these pieces were ruled by natural laws that were in principle knowable, and that between all these atoms was simply empty space. Once you opened up this idea, they actually developed a conception among Democritus, Epicurus, and others that the universe could in fact be infinite in its extent, and that maybe the stars we saw were perhaps distant suns like our own, seen at a great remove of distance. Perhaps they too had other worlds, because the universe was infinite, there's an infinite of places to stand, and perhaps in that infinity of worlds there might also be people, animals, and the development of life on those worlds. This was purely philosophical speculation. It was a contemplation of the idea of an infinitely extended universe opened up this possibility that it was sensible to think about other places and other people living in those places. They saw the world in physical terms. This is a marvelous idea, but it didn't catch on. One of the reasons it didn't catch on is while these ideas were were held by a certain uh, fairly well-defined philosophical school, they were not the only game in town. A very, very influential philosophical school grew up around the philosopher Plato in Athens and his greatest student, Aristotle, up around the 3rd century BC. Aristotle and Plato had a very different view of the world. They saw that the earth was unique and unmoving at the center of a finite universe, that the elements of earth, air, fire, and water were only found upon the earth, that above the lunar realm, above the realm of the moon, and out into the realm of the planets and stars, was made of an entirely different matter. They called it the fifth element, or the quintessence, that made up the celestial matter. And they saw a strong division of the worlds between the heavens above and the earth below. The earth was the place of rest, of change, of death and decay. It was the place where the four elements of earth, air, fire, and water held sway. The heavens, on the other hand, were eternal. They were in a state of perfect, uniform, circular motion. They were fixed and unchanging. The stars were the same stars that shone down upon our ancestors and would shine down upon our predecessors in the world's past. 
When you view the world in this very confined way, the universe in this very confined way, with the earth fixed and moving at the center, and the heavens made of something completely different. Now, they saw the earth as, and heavens as made up of physical entities, but they saw them as separate from each other. Once they did that, they actually explicitly denied the possibility that there were other worlds, or that those other worlds could even be populated. It didn't even make sense to them in their view of the world to even pose it as a question. So influential was this idea that it basically shut off all inquiry into the question of the nature of the universe beyond a certain scale. Now we're going to see the effect of this particular way of thinking next week when we talk about the Copernican Revolution. But it really is an interesting example of the way in which a view of the world can put blinders or constraints upon you that stop you from asking questions. Remember we talked about a little bit of the nature of science was a framework in which to ask questions and interpret results. If your framework does not permit the question, you don't even make the inquiry. That's the idea of what sometimes you'll hear referred to as a paradigm, a view of the world that sets the stage for how you ask questions and how you interpret those answers. This was a very powerful paradigm it was to hold a lock on the Western mind for nearly 15 centuries. But this isn't to say that the Western mind was the only mind at work. There were other minds at work as well. Now, depictions of non-Western imaginings of other worlds do exist. They're relatively rare, in large measure because they're sometimes couched in metaphorical or cultural terms, and it's hard to translate what they're actually talking about. Only occasionally are these survivals so explicitly referring to other worlds that it becomes obvious. And there are two examples I've chosen, and there are many. The first of these up in the upper left, there's a beautiful woodcut here um, uh, with a screen color painting from, from 10th century Japan for a story called the Takatori Monogatari, the tale of the bamboo cutter. In this tale, a poor bamboo cutter going out into the forest to cut bamboo comes across a large piece of bamboo that's glowing. When he opens it up, he finds a tiny infant girl inside of it. Well, he and his wife are childless. They take the child home. They raise her. She turns out to be incredibly beautiful. She has many suitors, eventually attracting the emperor himself, who wants, him, wants her for his wife. But then it's discovered that she is not a child of the earth. In fact, she is a daughter of the moon. And one day, emissaries, celestial emissaries from the moon, arrive in a pavilion to come down and take her back home. It's one of the earliest depictions of peopling the moon with celestial beings and actually seeing an interaction between those celestial beings, what we call extraterrestrials today, and people on the earth. Even in Arabia, in the Islamic world, that gave rise to the, the marvelous stories of the Thousand and One Nights, the whole story of Scheherazade, Aladdin, all those stories buried within here, there's a less famous set of stories than Aladdin and Sinbad the sailor. It's a man by the name of Bulukia. Bulukia went on a journey to search for the herb of life. This took him out to meet mermaids, talking snakes, and eventually to other worlds and meeting the people, the jinns and the other people that inhabited those worlds. He didn't say exactly how Bulukia made his journey. There was a lot of metaphor and myth. But it's pretty clear these stories are not from 14th century Arabia. In fact, they probably go back into Persian stories, even earlier, perhaps even pre-Islamic. So certainly the idea that there were other worlds and other places to go were viewed either in terms of celestial beings in the case of the Japanese story or perhaps in terms of metaphors for adventures to other places. It's a very common view in human history that we see this. Coming back to the West, the ideas of Aristotle and Plato were very influential and they were influential for 15 centuries until the coming of the time of the Copernican Revolution when Nicholas Copernicus 
in the year 1543, the year of his death, published a book describing a way of viewing the heavens in which not the earth was at the center of the universe, but the sun was at the center, and the earth was but one planet of many circling the sun. We'll talk in detail about the Copernican Revolution on Monday because it's really the scientific stage setting for our discussions. But what's important about this is he conceived the earth as but one of six planets. The earth was a celestial body in the Copernican view. Now, Copernicus himself never really, at least in writing, followed through on the implications of setting the earth free from the center of the solar system, breaking that Aristotelian and Platonic deadlock on the earth. But one of the people who came after him, Sir Thomas Diggs, who lived in the century just following Copernicus, who was the first person among other people to translate into English Copernicus's work on his heliocentric or sun-centered system, it was Diggs who was responsible for this beautiful woodcut here that appears in his book. This is actually sort of what looks like badly spelled English, which is properly spelled English, as well as there was spelling of English in the 16th century, realized that the Copernican system did not have to have this final sphere to which the stars were affixed. It was able to break this crystalline sphere of the stars and realized that the Copernican view of the world opened the door once again to the infinite universe that was considered by Democritus and Epicurus and the others. So with Diggs, we see the first reappearance in the West of a universe that is infinite, in which the stars may in fact be other suns, in which those other suns may have other planets, and who knows, they may in fact have life upon them. It's an example of where changing one's view of the world suddenly opens up whole vistas of inquiry that did not make sense to you to ask before. Probably the most famous and certainly most early and misunderstood early proponent of this idea of other worlds in the context of Copernicus was the monk and philosopher Giordano Bruno, who lived in the late portion of the 16th century. He was born again just after, pretty much came, to, came of age after the Copernican era. Bruno was a rather peculiar character. He was a genius by all definitions of that most overused word. His philosophy is a tremendous mix. It's a mashup of all kinds of things. A little Copernicanism here, a little of Nicholas Acuza there, an awful lot of Hermeticism, some Neoplatonism. He's all over the map, and he wrote a tremendous amount in his life, much of it highly confrontational. Bruno was one of those people who basically considered if you did not agree with him, he was an idiot, and he told you you were an idiot. Many of those who he declared were idiots were not only the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church and the major theologians of the Roman Catholic Church, but when he finally got driven out of his native Italy because of fear of getting, well, being actually somewhat correctly within the laws of the time, accused of heresy and therefore subject to uh, trial by the Inquisition, he took off into Protestant Europe, where he managed an exile over a year. No matter how long he stayed in a place, he managed to piss off the locals by basically insulting them or insulting their intelligence or both. Eventually, Bruno's luck ran out. He went back to Italy. He thought he had a very well-placed protector among one of the wealthy members of uh, Venetian society. Unfortunately, he was steadily pissing off his, uh, his uh, patron. His patron decided that it was better to cut his losses when, um, in, in associating with this obvious nutcase heretic, and so he turned him over to the Inquisition, who arrested him, imprisoned him for many years, found him guilty after a very long trial for heresy among many things he was, he was uh, condemned for. And on uh, February of the year 1600, he was burnt at the stake in the Piazza del Fiore in Rome. He's considered by many people to be a martyr for free thought, and I suppose you can view him in that terms if you could imagine to pin his thought down well enough to come up with a system that actually he was freely thinking. 
Well, one of the places where Bruno makes his way into the whole literature on extraterrestrial intelligence and science <coughs> is due to his 1584 book on the infinite universe and worlds. He took the Copernican idea, ignored all that mathematical stuff he wasn't interested in, and ran like hell with the idea of an infinite universe. He probably came into contact with Thomas Diggs during his time in England, and that further cemented his ideas, although he never references Diggs in his own work. He proposed that each star was, in fact, like the sun and our own. Each had their own system of planets. Each were peopled with intelligent beings, perhaps even like human beings. Now, if he just stopped there, he probably been, would have been okay. But he began to then assert that since there were an infinite number of places where human beings existed, there were an infinite numbers of places for salvation as defined in the Christian faith, and therefore the Catholic Church's claim that it was the one place of grace and salvation in the world was the earth was in fact wrong. He actually had a very strongly deistic view of God that eventually was what led to the charges of heresy. Bruno was not charged with Copernicanism and burned for Copernicanism. He was not burned for viewing that the earth moved around the sun. He was burned for a whole bunch of ideas that really were heretical. But he did say a few things that resonate with us today. Quote, The space we declare to be infinite, since neither reason, convenience, possibility, sense perception, nor nature assign to it a limit. In it are an infinity of worlds of the same kind as our own. And he went on to elaborate these ideas, but he never elaborated them into a system that had any kind of philosophical predictions, had any mathematical or quantitative power, and his ideas would have died with him if it wasn't for the fact he left such a huge number of books behind him. So Bruno is kind of really, in, in many ways, I feel an intellectual dead end. I think his, his, his stock has been elevated too much by enthusiasts who haven't actually bothered to read his stuff. I've read some of his stuff in... Uh, in English translation, it's interesting, difficult, and there's not much in it of interest to people in the 21st century. But the Copernican idea worked its way on the world in a way among the intellectual world that really started opening people's ideas. Even though the Copernican system itself was not really the right answer in detail, the idea of setting the Earth free from the center of the universe, for making the Earth but one of another planet, of making the universe once again populated by physical entities, stars, galaxies, etc., that are made of the same stuff as us and perhaps run by the same physical laws was a tremendously exciting idea. Furthermore, as we're going to see a bit on Monday, when it showed itself to have tremendous predictive power and give us progression forward in the understanding of the world. So people in this era began to write, in their writings, began to imagine other worlds. There are many examples, but I've picked two that stand at the very interesting opposite poles of this type of inquiry. The first comes from Johannes Kepler, one of the most, one of the most famous astronomers of this period, in fact, one of the real architects of the scientific revolution. Now, we know Kepler for his laws of planetary motion, but he actually, in the years 1620 to 1630, before his death in 1630, wrote a book called The Somnium, or The Dream. It was published after his death by his heirs. It's kind of a funny two-part book, but a lot of books that Kepler wrote were funny. The first half is a very serious treatise on lunar astronomy. In fact, it takes the Copernican point of view and asks, what would the motions of the Earth look like from the perspective of the moon? He was changing the perspective to really describe in vivid terms how the motions of the heaven in the Copernican system would look if you looked somewhere from the other than the Earth. The second part was the odd part. He put into it a literary form common of the time of a dream narrative of a journey of a series of students starting out from Tycho Brahe's island, which is where Tycho Brahe was another astronomer who lived in the island of Havain outside of Denmark, 
who then, through means that are not of interest to us, journey to the moon. And on the moon, they meet the inhabitants of the moon. And Kepler describes their appearance, their skin, what they eat, what they drink, what their environment was like. It all seems very strange until you step back a little bit from it. What Kepler was doing was really quite interesting. He's a hard scientist. He's a hard, really genius mathematician. What's he up to? Is he writing a work of science fiction? Or is he actually turning this question on its head and kind of fooling us a bit? He's actually asking serious scientific style questions about, well, the moon is a physical place. It's not just simply hanging in the sky. If it's a physical place like the earth, it has mountains and valleys. It has weather. It has climate. It has environment. What would a creature living in that environment be like? How would the environment influence what that creature is like? We see different kinds of creatures in the cold parts of the earth. Different creatures, however, live in our desert. So clearly, the type of animals and plants we see living in desert versus steppe versus arctic are different. So what about this alien environment of the moon? What would it look like there? It was a semi-scientific imagining of actually asking interesting questions about what the environment might say for the kind of life that would live there. It's a fascinating book when you read it. It's recently come, come back into English translation. It's worth reading. It's tough going, but it's interesting reading. At the other end of the poll is the French diarist and, and uh, all-around uh, party guy, Cyrano de Bergerac. Now, this is, some of you may know the Edmond Rastan play, Cyrano de Bergerac, the big nose and everything like that. Cyrano did have a big nose, but not as big as Edmond Rastan actually put in his play. The real Cyrano was quite a character, and he wrote two books, one of which was published shortly after his death, called The States and Empires of the Moon, and an unfinished work called The States and Empires of the Sun. This, he and his buddies go on a journey to the moon and describe the inhabitants there. This appears a little bit, this sort of journey to the moon appears in portions of the uh, Cyrano de Bergerac play, for those of you who know it. Now what this is, is quite unlike Kepler, it's an adventure narrative in which the moon is but a place. Although the moon was of interest at the time because of the growing interest in the Copernican view and the discoveries with the telescope that had gone on decades before by Galileo Galilei, who had shown the moon to have mountains, craters, and valleys. But really, if you dig below the surface of this, it's just a picaresque adventure talking about the morals and manners of 17th century French society. It says more about the sun king, perhaps, than about the sun. So there's two different ways in which the new discoveries in astronomy excited the imagination. And men like Kepler, people started asking scientific questions about what life might be like on other worlds because they started thinking of them as physical worlds like our own. It had topography and climate and everything else. And in Cyrano's case, it was part of the cultural imagination so he could use that interest in there as a touchstone to then build his commentary on 17th century flesh politics. So different ways in which our imagining of other worlds serves different purposes. But it's starting to come into the, human con the Western consciousness, that there might be other worlds and that there are other physical places. Well, not a whole lot. There's a lot of different narratives to go through the 17th century, 18th, and 19th century. And I've skipped over a lot of those, and I'm certain I'm going to miss someone's favorite or scientific author. But really, the next most really influential writer is Herbert Wells, H.G. Wells, who uh, was a Victorian England novelist who really is in many ways the father of modern science fiction. Between him and Jules Verne, the whole genre basically is right there at the, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. One of the most enduring imaginations of other worlds of Wells has to be his 1898 novel, War of the Worlds. It's the archetypal depiction of aliens as invaders. 
of creatures from another world taking over our own. The Martians basically are coming, in this case, from a dying desert world. These were recent observations made with us by astronomers of Mars, finding that it didn't seem to have much by way of weather or a little bit, and they envisioned Mars as a dry, cold, dying desert world. Wells picked up these scientific ideas which were coming into the popular consciousness and played on them to talk about various themes that he was interested in. The aliens here, the Martians, have a vastly superior technology to the humans. They basically are stomping our butts left and right, and he, of course, sets his novel in Victorian London. But ultimately, they're stopped by terrestrial diseases which they have never encountered. Basically, they catch a cold or they catch the flu and they all die. Now, what's really hiding underneath this, though, is that Wells was using this as a vehicle. He was commenting on late British imperialism. What is the morality of a vastly superior group of people taking over and subjugating those who are less technologically sophisticated? This was a, a debate going on within British society at the time when British, Britain was at the height of its colonial empire. The idea that, anim, uh, that creatures who did not evolve alongside human uh, diseases, disease theory was brand new at the end of the 19th century. The idea that it was caused by microorganisms was brand new idea. And the idea of evolution, a la Darwin, was a brand new idea, and he put them together and was able to make commentaries within his theory about thinking in Victorian England, about evolutionary theory, and then in the interactions, how the people responded to the complete disruption of society in England. The idea of the concept of total war, which had not yet occurred in the world, was all played out within this novel, and how would the, Victor the proper Victorian man respond when his society is stripped from him by this total war. Those were the themes of the War of the Worlds, and they're powerful themes. So powerful they've occurred over and over again. The first dramatization of War of the Worlds had to wait until the year 1938 when Orson Welles, no relationship in a different spelling, the American actor, and the Mercury Radio Theater on the Air for CBS Radio in New York, put together a pre-Halloween show on October 30th of 1938 called War of the Worlds. Now, the Martians were moved from Victorian England to Grover's Mill, New Jersey, so the, the, uh, the, the Martians decided to take on Joyzy. The first half of the broadcast was recast instead of telling a straight narrative. They did a series of simulated fictional news reports. They broke in on uh, music. They gave news reports that sounded so realistic, like real news reports that people were used to hearing over the radio, that it caused a near panic in the eastern portion of the United States. This panic was aided and abetted by that year, 1938. Who remembers what happened on September 30th of 1939? It's the Nazi invasion of Poland at the beginning of World War II. There was tremendous anxiety in the United States at this period. The war in the Pacific had already picked up. The Japanese had already conquered and were, were doing terrible things in, in, the, in Manchuria and China. European tensions were beginning to pick up. The Germans had already begun to annex, although without firing any obvious overt shots, Czechoslovakia and Austria. War fears were on everyone's lips. It was kind of a, uh, a good portion of tension, realizing that a year later a war was going to be started which was, to, which was estimated to have killed between 50 and 80 million people, most of them non-combatants and many of them under conditions of unspeakable horror. So this kind of anxiety resonated against this idea of invasion where one was treated with such overwhelming force and faced with total war. Within a year, we would find out what total war was really all about. At the end of that total war, World War II, in the course of that, we invented the ultimate weapon, 
the nuclear bomb. The first film depiction of War of the Worlds was in 1953, the George Pal film. It was the first film adaptation of this story. It won an Oscar for special effects. It moved the dramatic focus to post-World War II Los Angeles and saw the Martian invaders converging upon Los Angeles from the deserts. It also saw the use of a nuclear bomb against them, which was completely ineffective, and incorporated into the film stock footage, especially in the preamble of World War II combat and mass destruction. So it played on all of those fears and ultimately was strongly influenced by post-World War II and early Cold War anxiety about atomic war. But the idea that something could come in and annihilate us and use the Martians as a vehicle for exploring that was some pretty cool special effects that won them an Oscar. So again, the same story, changing the scene a little bit, but playing on our cultural fears of war and total destruction. Not surprisingly, this theme reemerged again and a couple of years ago. The Martians in 2005, Steven Spielberg did a reimagining and adaptation of War of the Worlds. The Martians returned to New Jersey this time, but now the tone of the story is not reflecting the atomic fear of the post-World War period, but in fact is reflecting this fear of post-9-11 anxiety about terrorism in the United States, about forces beyond your control disrupting your society. There have been some other very, and, and also there was something about Tom Cruise could be a better father or something like that in there as well. But, you know, it's, it's a Steven Spielberg film. Take a guess. Now, there are other interesting variations on this theme. If you have, remember Independence Day, uh, the uh, aliens come down, bust us, and we finally get rid of them. Hmm, not with a virus, but a computer virus. It's War of the Worlds. Just has, you know, Will Smith instead of Tom Cruise. But same same story. And Mars attacks, well, that's also War of the Worlds, except the Martians are done in by yodeling instead of viruses. So that's one of the enduring themes, as aliens who come down and, and conquer us. Another common depiction is that aliens, the alien beings are highly evolved, technically advanced super beings. There are lots of variations on this. Probably the most famous is Robert Wise's 1951 film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. This played on the whole issue, again, of post-World uh, War II, the beginning of atomic warfare. Human beings, by developing atomic weapons, were now becoming a threat to galactic civilization. And an emissary, uh, Mr. Klaatu here, comes down in his flying saucer, lands in Washington. The military immediately fires on him. He goes around through various adventures and wants to talk to the scientists of the world, and eventually, uh, you know, the film ends. Um, there was no attempt at understanding science and the science fiction here. They were trying to make broad points. All the characters are sort of very broad symbolism. No more than Michael Rennie's Mr. Klaatu, who was drawn in such obvious symbolic terms that all the four-year-olds in the audience were pointing at the screen and going, look, mommy, Christ figure. I mean, come on, make it sporting. The guy steals a uniform and his name is Major Carpenter. I mean, come on. They make it hard on me for something. But the idea sticks. The idea that evolution leads to progression of greater intelligence. And so maybe these aliens are super evolved. By the time of probably one of the greatest films ever made, in my opinion, 1968 Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, the aliens behind this story are so advanced they don't even appear. In fact, they probably don't even have physical bodies anymore. And they're viewed as not only coming to Earth, but having come to Earth and guided human development and evolution. And so we see them with the monolith here, with this marvelous scene with the, uh, the ape men in the beginning, which led to one of the most breathtaking jump cuts ever in cinema when the bone suddenly turns into a tumbling satellite. 
and to the final scene where the next stage of human evolution is approaching the Earth, the star child. Again, this film has many themes. It was actually praised for its amazingly realistic depictions of human spaceflight, but its imagining of life on other worlds is almost to essentially imagine them as, as separate from us as the gods were to the ancients. Now, the cultural implications, the cultural baggage that we bring in, the cultural images that we bring in, are many and varied. But you know, there's one image. If you bring up extraterrestrial life, I'm going to bet you that every single one of you recognized the figure on the left before you read any of the text. This is the famous gray alien. The gray alien is a very popular cultural icon that's so deeply ingrained in the human imagination, you see it everywhere. Okay? The basic properties are here as a large head, maybe evolved to have a bigger, more evolved brain, large, lidless, oval eyes, gray, hairless skin, and a long, thin body with long, spindly legs, limbs. Maybe it's adapted to growing, to living in low gravity. Who, who knows? We don't really, it's really hard to trace down the origins of this. H.G. Wells describes man a million years from now as looking something like this, and later on adapts it to his low-gravity moon being, beings in The First Man in the Moon. But it's appeared everywhere. The real big, the, the film debut of this that really sticks in everyone's mind is Steven Spielberg again, 1974's Close Encounter of the Third Kind, the big-eyed, big-headed alien, spindly arms. It's appeared as corporate logos, like for this particular company that makes uh, high-end gaming PCs. It appears in just about every episode of South Park. Really, watch carefully crowd scenes, little pictures of posters or pictures on the wall, uh, pictures on refrigerators. If you're paying attention, you'll see aliens all over the place. It's their j running joke in the show. If you come to my office, my sister made me a wall quilt. There's her signature block. <laughs> it's got a little alien. Immediately recognizable. So what do we get from this? Well, we get images of aliens. In fact, if anyone comes up with an alien abduction story and they draw that alien, they're watching way too much TV. At least maybe watching too much South Park or something. What do our imaginings tell us? What are all these, what's the final theme that we get here? We've used the, the idea of other worlds really, in many ways, tells us a whole lot more about ourselves, about our imaginings of the world, than it does tell us about other worlds themselves. We haven't really posed any scientific questions yet. We've just simply imagined beings that are similar to ourselves. They have similar motives, territorial ambitions to, to invade, the desire uh, to help those who may need a, a, lay, a hand up, for example, the super-evolved beings coming in to uh, guide human evolution. Maybe we just like good stories, and we like telling those stories in imaginative ways. So I like to think that these imaginings have told us a number of things. It's embodying our fondest hopes or our dreams that we, in fact, might live in comedy with, with aliens that live in other worlds. It might even be a source of some of our terrible, darkest nightmares, horrors that sort of should come up in the middle of the night. And sometimes, quite frankly, I think it reflects that one human characteristic that you have to bring to the study, and that's our really weird sense of humor. I, sorry, I really couldn't resist. So in this class, we're going to do something. We, I think in many ways, it's kind of like, okay, this gets the science fiction part out of our systems. Okay? This doesn't really tell us anything about the scientific inquiry into life in other worlds. We're going to have to look elsewhere for these questions. And where we're going to have to look is to first of all ask, well, what is the basis for which we can begin to ask the question, is it sensible to think about life on other worlds? So we have to start next week by looking at the historical and cultural background 
that intellectually is bringing us to the point that in the 21st century we can ask these questions. The Copernican Revolution, the Chemical Revolution, the Biological Revolution, the Geological Revolutions that have taught us the underlying science we need. The Cosmological Revolution tells us how the universe works. And from there we have to ask, what is life and how has it arisen on Earth? Where might we apply those lessons to the solar system? And once we learn from the solar system, how do we take that out to the stars and find out what alien life is really like We would like to jump to the question and know if it's going to be E.T. or the alien, or maybe it's already arrived, or we're going to have to get there the hard way. And I'm afraid the answer is we're going to have to get there the hard way, and that's what the next nine weeks of this course is all about. Any questions? Okay, good. I'll see you all on Monday. Have a good weekend.